Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this text today continues that line of thinking we began looking at last week, the first part of chapter 3. The theme of the promise of God's coming, or the coming of the day of the Lord as it's referred to in our text today. And as we approach this text, I want two words to, to be on our mind. I want us to be thinking about these two words. And this is basically the outline. These two words, delay and demands. The word delay and the word demands. Now most of our time today is going to be spent on that first one. Delay. But then toward the end I want to make some, some further observations and applications as it relates to some of our demands. So first I want us to consider Delay as it relates to the coming of the day of the Lord, the the fulfillment of God's promise. Delay is one of those words that can be either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the context, right? But when you go to an airport and you're getting ready to leave for a flight, what's the one word you don't want to see up on those screens? Delayed, right? If you if you travel at all, you I'm sure have experienced that. I think back about a year and a half ago, my family traveled uh, back east and on our return flight, we, we got stuck in Chicago during a, a, a massive snowstorm. And we sat in the airport for hours because our flight had been delayed. And I remember when, you, when, you're, when you're facing that situation, what do you do? You, you find a good place. You want to get over by the wall, especially with a lot of small kids. Get over by the wall, find, get close to an outlet where you can plug in the DVD player. Get somewhere comfortable, get out of people's way so that you can just sit there and relax for the many hours that you have to sit in that airport and wait. But uh, delay can also be, be a good thing, right? Students, have you ever shown up expecting a test or a quiz and your teacher miraculously enters the room and says that he's going to put off the quiz or the test for another day? You have more time to prepare, Maybe that paper that you thought was going to be due got pushed back. You have more time to work on it. So delay, you see, can be a good thing or a bad thing. But it certainly changes our mindset. When we we understand that we are in the midst of a delay, it, 
It changes our mindset toward the event that we're waiting for, the event that we're anticipating. And that's exactly what we read about here in 2 Peter 3. The Lord's coming is delayed. The coming of the day of the Lord is being delayed. (coughs) Verse 3 and 4, we saw this last week. Scoffers arose questioning whether God is actually going to fulfill the promise to return. What was the nature of his promise? We we saw back in chapter 2 that God promised destruction on the wicked. Those that rebelled against God, he promised destruction upon them. And upon those that followed after and obeyed and trusted and were saved through faith, they would be rescued out of that. This was the promise. This is what we are waiting for. And yet it is being delayed. And the scoffers saw that delay and questioned whether or not God was going to keep his promise. And the reality, as we saw in verses 5 through 7, was the fact that they overlooked a certain fact. And Tim laid this out for us last week, that they overlooked the fact that though they were claiming that things had progressed unchanged since the beginning of time, in fact, God had already come and, and judged the wicked and saved the righteous on several occasions. He'd already demonstrated that he was going to be faithful to his promise. Now Peter turns his attention toward his readers. And he speaks to them in contrast to addressing the scoffers, the false teachers that he's been dealing with. And now he almost grabs them by the face, says, Beloved, beloved, don't overlook this one fact. Don't do what the scoffers were doing, overlooking facts. Beloved, don't overlook this one fact. And what is the fact that we must not overlook? What is it that should not escape our notice as we sit in this period of the delay of God's coming? Well, it's stated in verse 8. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Now this phrase has led some to some unique interpretations of Scripture. In previous times in history, commentators viewed this as, as meaning that the, the entirety of human history would be 6,000 years. Patterned after the week of creation, the six days in God's economy equaled a thousand years. Therefore, before he entered his rest on the seventh day, he spent six days creating. And now we live in a period where 6,000 years will pass. Then we will enter the eternal rest of God. There are still others <clears throat> misunderstand this and, and understand Revelation 20, the thousand years mentioned there in a symbolic way, in light of this text. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day, therefore a thousand years in God's mind isn't really a thousand years. Now I think there's legitimate ways to understand the Revelations 20 passage as symbolic, but I don't think this text helps us get there. Rather, this text is a 
allusion back to Psalm 90, verse 4. In context, Psalm 90 lays out the fact that God is eternal. It says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Before the mountains were brought forth, before you created the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. That's verse 2. Verse 4 then follows it. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. When it is past or as a watch in the night. So what this phrase means, I believe, is rather simple. Simply this, God does not account time the same way that you and I account time. Because God is eternal, He views time in in a far different way than you and I do as finite beings. We are people that are bound by time. We live under the constraints of time. We are constantly aware of time god is is not that way god god created time god is above time he is eternal so god is not limited by time in the same way that you and i are therefore the delay these two thousand years since christ came and promised that he would one day return the two thousand plus years that have passed since then to us seems like a long time, and it is. But God has a far different perspective on time than you and I do because He is eternal. You might imagine this accounting of time being comparable to, to the difference between the way a child accounts time and an adult counts time. I mean, for the children in here, it's probably going to be, seems like it's going to be forever till Christmas gets here again. And you start looking at a calendar and seeing just how long it's going to be. It's going to take forever. But I'm sure for the adults in here, we, we know that it's going to be just like this. And it's going to be here before we know it. Just take that difference in perspective that exists between a five-year-old and a 50-year-old. And multiply that times infinity. And that's the difference between our perspective on time, our constraints by time and God's. Therefore, I want us to understand God's perspective on time is eternal. God is not bound to the constraints of you and I. Therefore, the scoffers are foolish. Scoffers back then, scoffers today are foolish to define God in terms limited in the way that we're limited. God is eternal. His perspective on time is eternal. But I also want us to observe that the delay in His coming is the result of His patience. Not only is He eternal, above time, accounts time differently, but the delay in His coming is is due to his patience. Look at verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Just a reminder that his promise here referred to is the same promise that we've seen in the first part of chapter 3. The promise of his coming. You remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples that he would return. 
In fact, they expected him to return very soon. And yet here we are 2,000 years later. And the reality is that God is delaying because he is patient. It's interesting to note the difference in the sentiment that is expressed in these verses and that which is expressed elsewhere in the scripture. If you were to go and study through especially the Old Testament passages prophesying the coming of God in judgment or salvation. Passages such as Deuteronomy 7 verse 10, Habakkuk 2 verse 3 and many, many more. God makes it clear that the coming of his judgment will not be delayed. It will hasten. And even passages like Isaiah 46, 13, where God promises a swift salvation for his people. He will not be delayed in saving his people. And yet here we are, waiting in this period of the delay of God's coming in judgment and salvation. One of the groups that existed back in the first century was a, was a group known as the Epicureans. I don't know that they were necessarily the scoffers referred to specifically here, but they were certainly around at the same time and they certainly uh, espoused a lot of the same teachings. And the two men during that time dealt with their teaching in different ways. One was the man Plutarch. You may have heard of that name. He said this in response to Epicurean thinking. The delay and procrastination of the deity in punishing the wicked appears to me the most telling argument by far. This delay destroys belief in providence. So he basically sympathizes with the scoffers. That yeah, I think this delay proves that God really isn't going to fulfill his promise. But I want us to observe the way another man reacted to the Epicureans. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 He responds to them with these words. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's point to these teachers was that yes, God is overlooking the times of ignorance. But he's doing so, and at the same time calling all men to repent. And then he, he makes this connection between the coming day that is fixed, the coming day of judgment that God has fixed. There is a day that God has fixed for judgment. And he's appointed a man, the man Jesus Christ, who will judge all things. And yet he is waiting for for those to to come in faith and repentance, trusting in the work of that man to be saved from that judgment. So if the fulfillment of God's promise is certain, if we were to believe the Apostle Paul, then what are we to make of the fact that it has taken as long as it has for him to return in judgment and salvation? What are we to make of this fact? I think the answer is quite clear from verse 9. God is patient and desires that none perish, 
but that all reach repentance. Now that's the simple answer. God is patient. He does not wish any to perish, but that all would reach repentance. This patience of God is an attribute that is at the very heart of his self-revelation throughout Scripture. One example, Joel chapter 2. The book of Joel, is its theme really is the day of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord. But in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 11, or 12 through 13 rather, going forward, not backward. God says this, yet even now return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. His point is that though the day of the Lord is coming, God pleads with his people to return to him in repentance, rending your hearts, not your garments, because God is gracious. God is patient, and his patience is tied to his desire for all to reach repentance. This verse, 2 Peter 3, 9 expresses a similar sentiment as verses such as 1 Timothy 2, 4. Where it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Another key verse, Exodus 18, 23 and 32. Where God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. What are we to make of statements like this? I want to spend a a few minutes considering this. Because we have seen from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, and on through our text today, how God hates those that oppose him. The wicked will be destroyed. And yet, we have verses that talk of God's desire that all would be saved. His not taking pleasure in the death of anyone. What are we, how are we to think about these verses? I, as someone, we as, as people that affirm and love the biblical teaching of God's sovereign election of sinners for salvation... Verses like this have the potential to undermine the truth that we cherish. The truth of God's sovereign election. In fact, I've had people bring up verses like this. Even specifically, 2 Peter 3, 9. Perhaps you have had conversations where people bring up the fact that God is not willing that any should perish. How, how does His... Desire for all to be saved square with his sovereign choice of some for salvation. Does this pose a problem in our thinking? How do we, how do we believe both? What are, what are we supposed to do with this? 
before we go any further, let me just define for us what we mean by unconditional sovereign election of God and just take a minute to show why I believe this is a clear teaching of Scripture. It should be cherished by Christians as a means of seeing the glory of God. To do so, let me just read a portion of our church's doctrinal statement from the section of the grace of election. It says this, We believe that before the foundation of the world, God elected a great multitude of men and women to eternal life as an act of His sovereign grace alone, in no way dependent upon His foresight of human faith, decision, works, or merit. Put very simply, we believe that before God created the world, He decreed through election that only certain men, women, and children would come to faith in Christ through the Spirit's calling and and work of regeneration. Where do we get this belief from? Here's three verses of many that we could go to. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, says that there are none that are righteous, not even one. There's none that seek after God. All have turned aside. The portrait from Romans 3 as a whole portrays sinful men and women as lost. We are not seekers of God in our fallen condition. We do not want God. We do not want to be righteous. We want our own way. We go astray. We seek our own will. That's our condition. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. We are described as being dead in sin. We are in We are in bondage to our trespasses and sins. But verse 5, God, because of His mercy, made us alive in Christ. We are saved by grace alone, not by works. Our salvation is entirely a work of God. Then Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those whom God foreknew, speaking of his sovereign election, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. But look at both ends of that. Those that God foreknew from before the foundations of the world, those whom he foreknew would one day be brought to glorification. So what are we to make of the apparent problem that exists here between God's desire that no one perish and His sovereign choice for only certain individuals to be saved? See, here's the crux of of this apparent problem. If we, you and I, desire for something to happen, and we have the ability to make it happen, then we are most definitely going to do what it takes to make it happen. Think think about it this way. If we desire to give someone a gift, maybe it's a spouse or a child or a friend, 
we desired to give someone a gift. And we had a, a specific gift in mind. We lacked the resources to acquire it. Maybe you want to buy somebody a new car. You don't have the money to buy somebody a new car, so you have to settle for something less. The fact that we don't have the resources to get that gift, even though we desire to do it, is understandable. We don't have the means. If we desire to give someone a gift, we had the resources. We had plenty of money to buy whatever it is that we desire to get that person. Then we choose not to get it. Then the sincerity of our desire would be in question. What did Do we really desire to get them that if if we don't? Right? This makes sense. This is the way we think. If to not give the gift that we desire that person to have either means that we don't have the ability to do so or we don't have the desire. So in thinking about the will of God, in terms of the salvation of sinners, it seems that if it seems that if we're forced to believe that either he desires everyone to be saved but doesn't have the ability to make it happen, or that the choice for some to salvation means that his desire was not genuine. Right? This is this is to kind of put God in the human box. Either God wants everyone to be saved or or can't do it. Or he has sovereignly chosen certain individuals and doesn't really desire everyone to reach repentance. And I think even remembering what we talked about in verse 8 helps us here. God is not like us. God does not work in our human finite ways. Therefore, this either or that, that we face in our finiteness does not exist in God. So while we are forced to choose one over the other, we need to understand that there are in fact what many theologians refer to as two wills in God. This is not just a theological cop-out where we can't solve the problem, so it's just two wills of God. But rather, this, I think, is the biblical teaching of Scripture. And I think that the prime example of the exercise of two wills in God is the death of Jesus Christ. You see, everything that happened leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus happened as a result of evil and sinful actions. From the betrayal by Judas, one of his disciples, to the false accusations made by the witnesses that were called at his trial, to the act of crucifixion itself, all of these things were sins that in one sense God does not desire to take place. God does not desire in his holiness and perfection acts of betrayal as Judas demonstrated. God does not desire in his 
infinite truth for lies to be told. God, who is the author of life, has stated that authority over life and death is not ours. Certainly, the death of the God-man is not something that was in line with the, the desires of God. And yet, when we read the Apostles' testimony of of what happened, we are left with the fact that God, in fact, willed that those things happen. Acts 4, 26 through 28. This is the testimony of the Apostle Peter, along with John, as they pray to God with these words, for truly in this city there were gathered together Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So we know that in one sense, it was not the will of God for the various people to sin in the manner in which they did. It was not the will of God that they sin. But in another sense, it was the will of God that these things happen. Because through the events that took place, the death of Jesus on the cross brought about the salvation of those whom He had set His love on to save. And so here we have and probably the prime example of all of Scripture, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the demonstration of these two wills of God. Theologians sometimes refer to these as God's will of decree and His will of command, or His sovereign will and His moral will. But even if we are able to distinguish between these two, as I think we can from passages like Acts 4, it's still difficult for us to understand how they work together. And how are we to think about verses like 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4 and Ezekiel 18? Along with some other examples such as the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. God did not desire for Pharaoh of Egypt to oppress his people. He loved his people. But yet God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would oppress the people. The hardening of Israel in Romans chapter 11. Again, these, these were God's people, the nation of Israel. And yet Paul writes in Romans 11 that God hardened them so that the Gentiles would receive salvation. So while in one sense it was not the will of God to harden His own people, He loved them. But yet it was the will of God to harden His people so that others would be saved. Or how about His 
choice to restrain or not to restrain sin in the heart of the king. Think of the passages, notably in Proverbs, where it says the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands. He moves it however he wills. And yet how often God moves hearts of kings to do things that are against his desire, against his revealed will. How often the movement of, of the hearts of these kings results in, in sinful actions that God does not approve of. While this may seem inconsistent with how we want to think about God, this is why it's so crucial that we have a biblically informed view of God. Rather than imagining our own view of God. We must have a, a biblically informed view of God rather than creating a God after our own imagination. What we want God to be like. What we think God should be like. I think even back to last week, Tim gave us the example of teachers questioning whether God would actually do something. I think that's the first mistake. We are not like God. Therefore, for us to to question God on the basis of our finite understanding is a mistake. Rather, we go to the Word of God. We discern what He has revealed about Himself, including the two wills that exist. Let me put it to us this way. God desires that all would be saved. That's absolutely true. God desires that all would be saved. But God desires something else even more than that. God desires the infinite display of His own glory. And through the the judgment of sin, His justice is displayed in a way that His justice would never have been displayed through the salvation of everyone. And in his work of, of sovereign election, his work of salvation, his work of judgment, and even the promise of the coming of the day of the Lord where once and for all sin will be judged and his people will be saved. All of that in God's infinite creativity displays the fullness of His glory in a way nothing else could. And so, yes, God does desire that all would be saved, but He desires the display of His own glory even more than that. I think this understanding of these two wills in God actually helps in our evangelism. It helps as we interact with those that, whether they be scoffers or people that, that want to know the truth, want to, want to understand what we believe, understanding these two wills of God actually helps us engage with unbelievers. I mean, I want us to consider how we would answer someone that 
asked us this question. Does God want me to be saved? How would you answer if, if someone came up to you, whether it was your child, a friend, another family member, and asked you, as a, as a, as a lost person, does God want me to be saved? How would you answer? Maybe you've had that experience and perhaps as one that, that believes in, in God's sovereign election, you, you silently think to yourself, well, it depends. Hopefully we wouldn't actually say that out loud, but we think, you know, it depends. If you are elect, then yeah, God wants you to be saved. If you're not, then no, he doesn't. And I hope that understanding this text and understanding the two wills in God and how they work together will help us see that not only would that not be a loving answer to tell someone, but I think it's an unbiblical answer. So how should we think about and answer this question? Does God want me to be saved? Understanding that there are two wills in God that are totally complementary, do not conflict with each other, we can wholeheartedly tell that person that yes, God does desire for you to be saved. It is not in conflict with our affirmation of God's sovereign election to wholeheartedly tell people that God wants them to be saved. This is the very reason he has delayed his coming. It is because he desires that nobody would perish, but that all would reach repentance. We are not troubled by verses such as John 3.16 and others that express God's love for the world. We don't need to explain away and do all sorts of tricks of vocabulary to say what does it mean that God loves, actually loves the world. It doesn't really mean that. It means, you know, it means this. No, God does love the world. God does desire for all men to be saved. We should also guard against too far the other direction and, and view God simply as sitting there just wishing for everyone to be saved. Just like we would with, without the, the ability to get the gift, viewing God as, as wanting everybody to be saved but not able to affect anything. As if he had no ability to bring it about. The failure of people to reach repentance is not a thwarting of God's will. Yes, God desires that all would reach repentance, but the fact that many, many, many do not reach repentance does not thwart the will of God in one bit. We know that whatever God purposes, He is able to bring about. This is the difference between the, the will of decree. When God decrees something, it happens. No purpose of his can be thwarted. 
the will of decree and the will of command. God commands us to do lots of things. God commands us to not do a lot of things. And yet how often you and I disobey those commands. Our disobedience of those commands does not thwart His will. So we must understand these two wills exist in God. God is not like us. Don't define God on our terms. Define God on the terms that He has revealed Himself. There are two wills. Yes, He is not. He does not wish that any would perish. He desires all to reach repentance. And yet, in His great love and grace, He has set His love on on certain, and He has affected a a work in us beginning with His election of us on through the work of Christ on the cross for us to the Spirit's calling and regenerating work in our heart to bring us to salvation. And so we can behold that God seated on His throne. We can adore. We can bow down before Him and worship Him because of the the fullness of the display of His glory. And yet, despite the delay, God's fulfillment of His promise is absolutely certain. Verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. God will do exactly what He has been prophesying He would do. The coming of the day of the Lord, He would bring destruction upon the The world, the heavens and the earth will be burned up, destroyed. We saw back in chapter 2, the the wicked will be punished. The righteous will be saved. And the certainty of God's coming leads us to that second word that I want us to think about. I told us we would spend most of our time on the first, so don't be alarmed. I just want to make a few applications here. The demands that God's coming place upon us. There are several ways that the certainty of God's coming places demands on us. One, I've already touched on a bit. It's not explicitly stated in our text, but I think it's proper to infer the importance of evangelizing. If God is, does not wish any to perish, but that all should reach repentance, that should be the heart of every one of us as well. We should grieve over the fact that there are people that are perishing. We should grieve over the fact that there are people all around us that are resisting repentance. So there is still opportunity. God is delaying His coming. We have the opportunity to evangelize. We have the opportunity to proclaim the glory of God in the gospel. Also on the flip side, I would speak to any that would be here today that, are, that have not yet reached repentance. The delay of God's coming is an opportunity for you. Another opportunity to, to hear 
the word of God, to hear the message of the gospel. To respond to the call of the Spirit. And exercise faith in, in the work of Christ for salvation. The delay is an opportunity to respond. Tom Schreiner, a uh, commentator that I came across this week, made this observation about this whole chapter 3. said this, The false teachers use God's patience as an argument against God. That was last week. False teachers use God's patience as an argument against God when it should lead them to repentance. Don't make the mistake of, of those false teachers of, of viewing his delay as, as a proof that either he doesn't exist or he's not going to fulfill his promise. But rather, see his delay as, as, as a demonstration of his patience, an opportunity to respond in faith in Christ. Verses 11 and 12 begin and end with a description of the, the devastation that will incur throughout the universe as a result of God's judgment. I alluded to it a second ago. It will be burned up, destroyed, dissolved. It will be set on fire. But sandwiched in the middle of these descriptive pictures is this question that I want us to consider here as we seek to make a, a few final applications in light of the fact that all of these things, everything that we see and know and understand will be destroyed, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Everything that it now exists will be destroyed and give way to a new creation. That according to verse 13, is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There will come a day when all of this that is infected by sin will be done away with. And God will make all things new. A place that is filled with righteousness. And our lives now, even in the midst of this world, this life now should reflect the life that we will live on that day. See, we are people that are destined to live in that new creation. To enjoy the righteousness that dwells there. And as people that are, in fact, destined to, to live that life, we have the opportunity according to verse 12, to live lives of holiness and godliness here. And by doing that, we actually hasten the coming of the day of God. So our lives now should be characterized as a pursuit of holiness and godliness. This is not some sort of legalistic pursuit whereby we set, we set up for ourselves standards of holiness and godliness. 
in order to to earn favor with God because of our good behavior. Rather, this holiness and godliness is is merely the, the outworking of the hope that we have in the future that we will enjoy. Our lives of holiness and godliness reveal that our hope is not set in this world. Reveals that our hope is set in the world to come. That's what we have been created for. We have been bought with the blood of Christ for. Romans 8, 29 and 30. He began this work in us before the foundation of the world. When he foreknew us. And he has brought us through that process, predestination, calling, justification, all the way on to glorification, where we will enjoy the presence of, of God, our King. So let our lives even now be a, a reflection of the great hope that, that lies within us for that coming day. Our Father, we praise Your name today because of who You are. Even the reminder that You you really are nothing like us. Though we have been created in Your image, Your majesty, your, Your greatness is so far above our comprehension. We are fools to question your word. So Lord, I pray that you would enable every one of us to bow before your word today. That we would take that which you have revealed. And so teach us Change us by what it says. That we might truly have a a great hope and anticipation that changes the way that we live our lives now. That we will understand that you delay in your coming so that sinners might come to repentance. Pray that you would give us such a desire to see all men reach repentance that we would abandon all of the other pursuits that distract us for the pursuit of of reaching lost souls for you. Pray that our hearts and minds would would constantly be conformed according to your thoughts, according to your heart. Pray that your spirit would enable this work in us, that we might live in holiness and godliness. We pray these things through Jesus our Savior. Amen.